2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Diane Elliott, the Peter B. Ritzma Professor in the Humanities and Professor of History at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, to talk about her recent book, The Corrupter of Boys, Sodomy, Scandal, and the Medieval Clergy, out 2020 with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Hi, Diana. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Um, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. It's been a little bit of a road for us to get together, but I'm glad we're doing it. Yeah. Um, Well, part
0: of it is because I'm not really a very techno person, but... um, Uh, Technology is stupid.
1: And, you know, if anyone shouldn't have to deal with it, it is my medievalist. That is just unfair. I know Um, it is unfair. um, So how's Evanston these days?
0: Evanston's sort of... um, in lockdown. And we're also having an unprecedented freeze. I still do Fahrenheit. So it's like three degrees and with wind chill below. And it's just very cold. Um, So haven't been to the office. I like working in my office, but I haven't been there for a few weeks. um, And everybody's very paranoid about I don't know what things are like in um, the Netherlands, but everybody's very paranoid right now about catching COVID. So
1: yeah, same here. We're actually in complete lockdown, only necessities, and they have oh, to close really? up. five. Well, we're yeah, we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, hopefully uh, it'll be over in a week. But yeah, same thing. Everyone's just really worried right now about Omicron, and it just it feels a little bit like we've gone back a year in time and kind mm. of, mm. Yeah, yeah, there's some frustration, some a lot of mental exhaustion, I think. Yeah. The last quarter I was teaching a course
0: that I developed, actually taught for the first time when COVID was encroaching on pandemics. That's my non-medieval side. And it was fascinating how watching a pandemic creeping up on us, you know, the first time around until... We had to cancel the exam and everything. I'm sure the students loved that. But I told my students this year that they should feel very privileged sitting there with masks on, studying pandemics while we were in the midst of one. You know, and absolutely, that is a, that what right, a great right. learning
1: experience. Yeah. it's like you are there in history in that historical moment. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting as an historian. That's a helpful thing to think about too. Like what? How will we discuss this later? Um, Yeah, you know, and as historians, we know the past is well and truly still alive in a lot of ways. And uh, there are um, numerous connections, right? But like this actually speaks to this book we're here to discuss today, because rarely does a book speak so clearly and directly as this one. So let's just uh, get into it with this, my customary first question. How did you come to write this book?
0: Okay, so I've been interested in clerical sexuality for a long time, Um, but when the um, church sex scandal hit in Boston in 2002, I suddenly had one of these incredible flashes of insight that you get occasionally in history, where I was thinking about, you know, I was very struck by the way in which um, the whole clergy was complicit in moving culpable clerics from place to place. And I remember this quadlibet that I'd read, 13th century Henry of Ghent, when it was um, asked if A superior was aware that one of his subordinates who had the care of souls, meaning contact with the laity, um, was a threat to his um, spiritual charges. What should you do? The answer was move him. Move him when there's an opportunity, when you can do it without creating a scandal. And I know that people are very skeptical of starting in the present and then jumping to the past. I mean, um, which isn't usually But I had been thinking about the church and its preoccupation with scandal for a long time. Um, And even though I'm sort of skeptical that there's ever such a thing as a historical longue durée, you know, something that lasts unchanging for centuries, it did occur to me that the church had the perfect conditions for creating that law, they, you know, um, presented themselves as unchanging, and in point of fact, they used the same medieval sources as their main source of canon law until the early 20th century. So I I started wondering, is is this the way it's always been? And I didn't have fully the answer in my head then, but then I started to research church mechanisms, their fear of scandal, and of course, because of their... um, Insistence on clerical celibacy, at least in the Western Church, um, scant. The thing that would be most scandalous would involve sexual infractions.
1: And um, and so then uh, and you you're finding then so you're you're thinking you have this the, the current church scandal at the forefront of your mind and you're finding these things all over. Um, just I know not as easily as you would think. In fact
0: of the fear of scandal that 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 goes everywhere. I mean, it affects the way in which offenses are written up. Um, They, you know, will use euphemisms all the time. And of course we'll try and a lot of different um, religious institutions in the middle ages, like monasteries and stuff did their own policing. And so they wouldn't report to something external to the monastery. And of course, if there's a centralized situation, like a big house like Clooney that has one, Um, central place with one abbot and all the rest are priors, Um, these different priories are going to try and suppress that. So it's sort of a whole chain of repression and hiding that, you know.
1: So then your source material, you're you're ferreting out these things and there's and finding a lot of maybe half references or unclear mentions. That's
0: right. That's right. That's right. Like in in um, monastic cost, um, costumes, I mean, they won't even say out loud what they're what they're talking about. I mean, like when Peter the Venerable in the 12th century decided he was going to get rid of child oblates; those are children who are offered to the monastery, um, you know, as children, like before they're 14. Um, he said. That, okay, they're distracting. They make a lot of noise, and there are certain things which we won't talk about that you know you all know about, and so that's the kind of um, innuendo that you
1: find, you know. Yeah, um, which is mean, kind of at the bane of an historical existence, but also mm-hmm. kind of our job. Mm-hmm. Right,
0: but I mean it was after all. Okay, so since, since it was really boys that were more at risk, which is why this um, focuses on sodomy, which is a very ambiguous term in the Middle Ages, but towards the later Middle Ages, it does come to mean same-sex relations between men, particularly. But boys were more at risk because, um, I, well, I think actually women were girls were at risk too, but it's harder to root them out because the word "pula" girl is used to for any unmarried woman, and there wasn't the same kind of um, heinousness around, um, even though the church pretended that the scandal of women was a worse scandal. In fact, they knew that what would shock the laity more was the abuse of boys. So that was the scandal that they
1: tolerated, but also hid. Okay. Um, Yeah. And you argue in part one, you, you break the book into two sections. And the second part is these really illustrative and deep case studies and pretty fascinating. And in part one is dedicated to demonstrating that there's this tacit toleration of clerical sodomy that develops really from late antiquity.
0: Right, right. Well, um, you know, one of the things that's really important to understanding it, I think, is the way in which clerical sin is handled. So a lot of part one is looking at what are the mechanisms that clerical sin, you know. And in fact, um, in the early church, there was a, a system of penance that you know, was high profile cases that have to do public penance if they'd done something wrong. But right from the get go, there was a rule in place that someone... A cleric can't do public penance. I mean, and I think the understanding had been that if they did something really bad, like various kinds of fornication or murder or, you know, something like a really mortal sin, they should be deposed. But then what actually happened was they started doing penance in secret, and that's where we get the rise of um, sacramental um, confession, you know, it really started with clerical vice and clerical sin. So somebody could actually hang on to their position and the church wouldn't have to undergo the shame. And so that's one of the things that I trace in the um, first section. And then I also look at, you know, the trouble with boys. I think the chapter's called like just the problems of um, that boys presented. There was a kind of slippage in. Um, It's especially apparent in the early Middle Ages in monastic communities because even though it wasn't advised until the 11th century, most of the parish priests were married. But in monastic communities, there's a kind of slippage so that, you know, it's a female free zone. And so boys fit into that particular area of the forbidden woman. And there's a lot of um, people commentators and stuff talk very unabashedly about what do you do when a boy is raped by one of the older boys, They mean, like 14 and above. And interestingly, the solution they come up with is to punish the younger boy, which is really fascinating, you know, but it's also to a certain extent, as they did with women
1: kind of blaming the victim, you know, what's the rationale there? How do young boys come to be blamed for wantonness and sexual attractiveness? Well, I
0: think that I think that um, they, okay, I think that probably the um we always i mean, um people who are you know believers tend to present the church as sort of preservers of children. but I mean, if you really poke into it, I think that they had a very Low opinion of children as wayward, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, Saint Augustine, who was very big in the West, and still is, I guess, um, made the, <laughs> made the point that you know even a newborn child was sinful, and he had all of these examples about the pain he could cause his mother, and you know, and you and, um, and how they were, he remembered being just willfully weeping, and and so I think that they had this idea that um, that. You know, spare the rod, spoil the child. And there was a lot of eating, etc., in monasteries. But that really, um, little boys were not kind of innocent. They needed to be heavily controlled. And they um, could derail, you know, somebody in a auspicious position. I mean, in fact, and you know, one Carolingian monastery, just um, the boys choir, they had boys choirs from very early on, um, had a fresco over it of Ulysses and the sirens over the boys choir. So even though, (laughs) I know, I mean, even though clearly um, they don't want little boys raped, et cetera, et cetera, nevertheless, they are aligning them temptresses and sirens
1: right like and this also you know even as you mentioned with women that tracks right this idea that the that someone who is provocative who, who provokes who is licentious who brings the someone who is a siren is to blame
0: mm-hmm.
1: yes that's right that's right
0: and in addition you know the thing is even though women were allegedly well okay it was not against nature to have sex with a woman. And it was technically from a theological perspective against nature and more heinous to have sex with another male. Nevertheless, if you do have sex with another male, like in a monastery or, you know, later on when they start, when canons start living, priests start living together um, around a cathedral close or something like that. um, It's very much more in-house to have sex with a male than a female. And we find repeatedly in some of the later sources, people saying, well, if I have sex with boys, I can still maintain my reputation amongst the other priests as an honest priest, but women. So women in and of themselves become the, what I would say, the license scandal, the thing that you say, oh, look at this. It's terrible. He's involved with women. And even though the boys was technically more scandalous and probably would have scandalized the laity more, it nevertheless didn't threaten them in the same way. I mean, women are much more threatening, right? I mean, they're going to
1: produce children, deplete church resources, all of that stuff. Right. So you see, between um, the boys are this very easy, they're, they're there. They're a very easy victim. They're not going, there's going to be no illegitimate children running around. And then you have this thing where clerics are banned from doing public penance because that might blacken the reputation of the church and lead to some heretical thoughts about the sacraments perhaps. So then really it is a perfect storm. Right?
0: Yeah, it is a perfect storm. And um, one of the sad things is I think that um, one of the people who really tried to intervene was 12th century intellectual Peter the Chanter. And if you read um, a lot of medieval treatments of um, same-sex relations, etc. cetera, he's sort of demonized because he seems to, out of nowhere, come out with this incredible rant against um, same-sex relations and sodomy, which is, you know, my God, it's equivalent to homicide because that's the only other um, sin that raises a clamor to heaven, like Sodom and Gomorrah and Cain and Abel, right, homicide. God hears about it, same thing with sodomy. And if there was Sodomy and Sodom and Gomorrah, but, um, and so people would quote this like Boswell and uh, um, Mark Jordan, etc., etc., and just sort of treating him kind of like, and it did seem like a hysterical rant, but then when I looked at it and realized the position he was in and that his followers were in, this was during the rise of the cathedral schools when boys from all over Europe, um, you know, as young as 14, but they also had connections with the grammar schools where someone could be as young as seven um, were being preyed upon by older clergy. And so, um, you know, Peter the Chanter did his best to try and insist that this was a really heinous disease, that it was equivalent to murder, etc., cetera, et cetera, Unfortunately, he was also the first person who ever made scandal um, into a freestanding sin um, because scandal, we always think of it as just sort of some sort of flamboyant political thing that engages the nation. And we all watch like Clinton and Monica Wilson or something like that. But to the medieval mind, it, it technically comes from the Greek causing another person to stumble. And the idea is that a scandal could um cause like supposing a lay person learned that a priest had had sex with a boy this could cause them to lapse or have a lapse of faith or something so there was an altruistic um purpose, pressing scandal. But the sad thing is, here's Peter the Chander, who was trying to blow a whistle on it. And yet, he also made scandal for the first time into a freestanding sin. And the two
1: are going to work against each other. Uh, yeah, okay, I see this. But I mean, in the 12th century, we see this widespread understanding that pederasty is a problem, right? This happens. Um, so and how, do, how does this come about? Who's talking about it? How's it discussed? Is there a solution? What do we see? Well, not everybody sees it as a problem. I mean, this is one of the
0: things in, in um, John Boswell, who, by the way, I admire very much, who wrote, um, um, what was it called? Christianity, Social Tolerance and Homosexuality. Right? But then he has in the subtitle, Gay Culture, which which was problematical. But anyways, he has a chapter that talks about the 12th century that's called The Triumph of Ganymede. And Ganymede was Joe's cupbearer who... Jove, in the form of an eagle, snatched and took up to heaven, and you know had gay relationship or homosexual same sex relationship with him as he with his cupbearer. And in fact, this was the period in the 12th centuries with the rise of the cathedral schools and stuff, where we have a huge flourishing of erotic poetry all amongst the clergy. We know it's all amongst the clergy because it's all in Latin written young boys and you know sort of threatening them if you don't give it you know your your youth and beauty isn't going to last forever you know time will bring a horrible beard etc etc so we know that these are um you know young boys beardless boys like in in roman times and um, so there's this huge flourishing of this kind of erotic literature in certain circles around and it's only really in really the second half of the 12th century that we start to see the response of not just Peter the chanter but he has a whole circle of very in- people who are going to become very influential in um, you know trying to resist um, this kind of same-sex glorification culture um and um but you know it's an upward battle because in point of fact you know and i can i can see why modern historians look back at this period i mean like as as did boswell trying to show that there was a time when the church tolerated same-sex relations well you know Yes, tolerate. We've got to think of what the word tolerate means. It doesn't mean, oh, I embrace it. It means that you sort of pull it up with it. But you know, the the thing is it was in the wake of the final crackdown on clerical marriage. And so the timing's very interesting here. Clerical wives are no longer an option. And then you have this incredible flourishing of same sex Celebration amongst the clergy. And the backlash does come a little bit later.
1: And then, but a celebration really of. Um, an, uh, not not among, uh, not a relationship between two adult males, like two bearded, like right, no. this is
0: not <laughs> bearded, right, right. So that's gross. I mean, they would see that as gross, right? I mean, the whole, the, you know, really from classical times, I mean, in Roman times, it was actually illegal for a man of a certain age to let himself be penetrated by someone else. And this kind of, even though maybe for different reasons, but this, and, and maybe for opportunistic reasons, but this sort of pederasty, I think, is is uninterrupted
1: in the church. You know? Well, yeah, and you but, you know, there's the there were studies from a little bit later, in, you know, of course, Renaissance Florence and some work in Venice to demonstrate that this continues with the same idea that there's an active and a passive partner, and the passive partner is the problematical one.
0: Right, and you know, actually, is this? I mean, it's not so different from what's happening in the laity, especially in in Italy, right? Like if you read Michael Roquet's book about um, forbidden friendships, I think it's called in, um, you know, late medieval or early Renaissance Florence. I mean, you find the same pattern amongst, you know, older men and, and younger boys. And there are often a lot of violence implicit in these relationships, you know, certainly domination in terms of um, status, etc., cetera, um, and economic viability but also outright rapes and assaults sure. and stuff.
1: Yeah. And that kind of violence that tends to be this, there's this idea of like education. It becomes this like, you know, you can see it being tied in a little bit to spare the rod and spoil the child. And this, this idea that you're building men here.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, the thing about education is and I, I think I have a lot about um, corporal punishment in there, but it was so essential in both a monastic environment and in other areas where boys were at risk, like as choir boys, I mean, or learning grammar. I mean, it's very interesting that the actual symbol for grammar is um, an individual holding a flagel, a whip. Or, you know because it was it was just seen as essential for education and whether it was or not same thing with learning plain chant etc and there's some very sad poems about you know my master completely blistered my butt you know just hitting him even though there could be a double entendre there but you know it's it's Also, just pedagogically what they thought. And I think it also does show, by the way, um, a kind of disparagement of children and youths, right, that they have to really spare the rod, spoil the child, they have to be licked into shape, etc.
1: Sure. Um, so your case studies in part two really accentuate the ways in which, um, if we call them, I don't know if I want to call them sexual predators, but like maybe, um, that they have easy pickings in the choir schools, the Episcopal court. So what makes this sexual predation so easy here?
0: Uh, I think it's very circumstantial. Um, for one thing, um, well, monasteries, this has been going on forever, right? And they did try to raise the age of um, novices and oblates and stuff like that, but to no avail. People kept sneaking in younger people. Even if they didn't, they had servants who were very um, beholden to senior monks, etc. So that was very easy pickings. And of, co- of course, monastic institutions tended to be self-policing. There's not going to be a bishop who comes in there. I mean, most of them are not under the supervision of, the local bishop um etc um the other groups i think i think they're all kind of um sort of predictable situations right um there's going to be an incredible rise in interest in um music in the well i think was always musical but there used to be plain chant now there's going to be polyphony and you know flourishing of different kinds of musics and um Many big churches, not just cathedrals, would have boys' choirs, and boys' choirs were—I mean—in England, they were always—they called them poor boys—and they lived in the house. so they would be from lower um, classes, um, indigent people, and they were in a very vulnerable position. Not only did they have to be beautiful voices, but they had—you um, know—they had to get placed after their voices broke, so they would have to ingratiate themselves to whoever and you know i've got one case with this choir master john day who you know very clear what he does he he bribes the boys he gives them tall boots you know and um you know we have their testimonies about what he did etc etc but he bribed them and these kids would um i don't know went along with it um he was he was outed by, um, a cook, a lay person who looked through, um, I think they call it a spy hole or something, but, you know, and, um, but, but anyway, so choir boys, same kind of thing. Scholars, we talked about that. I mean, there'd be very, um, little scholars would be very, and this was probably the one that was most well-known. I mean, there was a lot of Pushback poetry about how um, nobility from all over Europe sent their kids to be, you know, seduced by, um, and so so there are these different niche groups. The last the last case study is really just focuses on one, and it's perhaps the most shocking. But again, we have this idea of dependent clerics. We don't know how old they were. They're probably apprentices. They could be anywhere from like ten to probably. Um, 18. But uh, there's this, um, the vicar of the vicar general of the um, bishop of Pistoia is a real monster who ends up raping and abusing every person who lived in his household, I mean, in the bishop's palace. And they have, um, there's an inquisition. This is what's interesting, run against him. But the inquisition is not because he was this monster who abused boys and youths. It's because he'd been backbiting against the bishop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for a while he was, um, you know, but all this stuff came out. They think, well, this has got to put an end to this guy. <laughs> but no, at the very end, and actually it was right when I was, you know, the book was really in, um, Production, and I sort of ended it with, "Well, we don't know whether or not you know what happened to him." <laughs> and I found a reference that, in fact, he was reinstated. It made no difference that that found out all of this kind of stuff. You know, he made it up with the bishop. The bishop may very well have thought this guy knows way too much about me to be just let go out there without a job. Bad mouth, but you know, didn't make any difference. So these were the four zones where I looked particularly for
1: um, evidence of what was going on, you know? Yeah, and so a lot of young men without immediate family or custodial care, right? yeah Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. Um, that's right i mean if if you're an apprentice you're removed from your family and they've often paid well they have paid whoever it is who's bringing up and it's not just somebody who's highly placed but even priests you know at at a parish church could have an apprentice and somebody would have paid he's even though they're doing work right they're the um the older person is paid to train these younger people, and if these poor kids, you know, come home and say sorry, you know, lost all the money because I just didn't like being abused by, you know, Monsignor. I mean, who knows how that would go over? And also, they were probably ashamed at what was happening to mm-hmm. them, you know, and
1: uh, you know, or just endured, used to it, um, well aware that it's common, you know, um. yeah. Yeah, except in the last case
0: of this guy, the the monstrous vicar general, um, there are a number of testimonies to these um, young people being badly damaged and having to go to the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's just
1: really sad. Yeah, that's this is a that's kind of a whole nother level of
2: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Okay, so then what kind of punishments are developed at this point for? Punishments, you mean for the perpetrators? For the perpetrators, if any, you know.
0: It's it's very hard to um, bring clerics to justice. I mean, we've seen that nowadays. I mean, for one thing, they had this concept that goes back to well biblical times you know fraternal correction and then you know what do you do when you find out if you're in a community of men well first you're supposed to go to somebody and um tell them you know okay i heard you're doing acts, and if he doesn't amend himself then you're supposed to bring other people and then you are supposed to In the bible you're supposed to denounce him but of course saint augustine uses the example of mary and joseph and how joseph didn't denounce mary and did the best to hide her pregnancy before he knew it was you know christ um, and this is sort of the, this is the path that most people will go that the, the more, um, the, the better path is the charitable path. And that if you actually expose somebody, they'll turn into despondency, you know, despondent. And there was actual, um, they would do sort of casuistic situations about should you tell the abbot, etc. So in that kind of community, no. Okay. So where have I found real punishment? Um, the one, the one instance is the choir master, John Day, and the evidence against him, there was obviously a cabal of priests who really didn't like him. And we know that he was... Um, difficult He was considered to be difficult with his servants, etc., etc. et cetera. And he was betrayed by his servant. And all of these people who were living in the household of another priest, I think John Rose or something like that. So I think that there was a kind of personal thing at work that brought him down. And it was during a bishop's visitation when, um, but interestingly, some of the people wouldn't testify against him, but he had some enemies. And they brought lay people in who were not sort of in the boys circle, right? I mean, in the men's circle of protection. Another case where um, when people are brought to justice it's almost invariably because it's gotten out to the laity and been made public. And there's a very, um, there's a case like that in late medieval Germany, again, with a choir boy where, um, but the um, when this, this kid, and there they didn't have a separate house for the boys and you were supposed to board with one of the canons. and so this poor kid you know his name was John Muller um, boarded with John Stalker who we found out afterwards had a terrible reputation but the other canons said to him don't tell anyone you know don't create any trouble don't but it did get out to the laity and he was deposed but nothing terrible happened he He had a powerful family, and so he was sent into exile, and who knows, maybe in exile he was reinstated um, in some capacity. So the the church, unlike um, the state, or unlike secular society, it has its own courts, and clerics, um, except under extraordinary circumstances in the medieval period, um, aren't ever put to death, and they could be for rape and sodomy in secular society and you know burned alive even i mean italy that yeah yeah that's true in italy it doesn't happen that often but it certainly well venice i think is very harsh but in northern europe we do see instances of secular Sodomites being put to death in that horrible way, but that's not going to happen to a cleric. And the only instances I know where clerics are put to death is for heresy, and then they are actually not just deposed from office, but you know, defrocked. We would call it, and then, you know, their unction um, scraped off their hands that made them priests, and then they could be put over to the secular arm and put to death. But I am not aware of instances in the church of that happening.
1: Wow, you know. I mean, so the, between this, the perfect storm, we discussed this um, concept that scandal is problematic, um, you know, the, the, the lack of any seeming political or will, any will in the church to do away with it. I, I can see why the church has real trouble stamping out pederasty in general. Is there anything we're missing? Is there anything else that contributes to this problem? Well, I think probably a lot of it has to
0: do with, it gets ingrained at a certain point, a contempt for women. And so there might be, I mean, not only are women a threat to an all-male community and to the church, because if you introduce heirs and church property and divides loyalties, that's all true. But I think that there really was a kind of visceral, um, develop amongst some people developed a real visceral disgust for women. You know, And that would certainly be something that would make um, men be, or males be, I shouldn't say men, because I never found one instance of two grown men or two men the same age um, involved with one another. It's always hierarchical. It would certainly make the love of boys much more attractive to certain people than the love of, of women. But you know what's interesting, though, is that in the 11th century, in the Gregorian reform, the married priests who were clearly on the losing end of things because, you know, the the papacy, which was becoming progressively centralized, was behind this reform, which finally extended to um, married clergy. And by in the early 12th century, they're actually going to make the marriage of clergy illegal. Like, it wouldn't count. I mean, no, illicit. So it wouldn't... Would, no, invalid. Yeah. So it's <laughs> not so good, yeah. I mean, all those oh. things, illicit as well. <laughs> yeah. Illicit, but now it's invalid, so it it's not even a marriage. But the married um, priests and their children were always saying, you know, you here you are denouncing us who want to have relations in the open, but there you are doing unspeakable, using euphemisms or um, acting as sodomites, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so they really called it as this is a division. We we can't really assess that. That just might be, you know, reverse accusation, slander. You accuse us of women, we accuse you of boys. But, you know, this was what they said. And it is interesting that once the reform was successful, we see this incredible flourishing of erotic same-sex poetry, you know, presumably, you know, from the winning
1: side. So, Yeah. All right. Okay. One last thing I want to talk about here. So I'm going to read. I'm going to quote directly right here. While each church district has its idiosyncrasies, the pattern was pretty much the same. The main thing was not to help the children, but to avoid scandal. That's not our word, but theirs. It appears over and over again in the documents we recovered. Special agents testified before us they had identified a series of practices that regularly appeared in various configurations in the diocesan files they didn't analyze. It's like a playbook for concealing the truth. And that's from the Pennsylvania grand jury report from 2018, which is how you open the book. And um, I mean, I don't think I have to really belabor the point about why that's appropriate and what why you took, cho- but um, and how it works. But it is such a bold choice for an historian to just to open there. And I'm curious about um, what you know. What, how how did that come over? Did you get backlash for this? How did it go? Yes, I I recently
0: had, um, there was a panel on my book at um, the uh, American Academy of Religion. And um, one of the respondents was very, very hostile and read it as, um, you know, actually he misread it to think that that was the genesis of the book. When in fact, the genesis of the book was much earlier when I was thinking, looking the Boston thing. And obviously, for a historian to suddenly say, look, the same thing's been going on for over a Yeah, I realized I was really walking out on a mm-hmm. limb. But I, at the point, you know, the book was practically in production when that grand jury thing came out. And I thought, oh, my God, I cannot... Not include this because, you know, this of course they have a playbook for concealing the, proof, the truth. And I that's what my book was about is, the, you know, the first half, anyways, is the church's playbook for concealing the truth. And yes, they have it canon law, tradition, all of those kinds of things. So um, I can see why some people would find it objectionable and think that I was, you know, completely prejudiced and biased against the church. But you know, for me to actually, there was a process for me to get to the point where I believed in this sort of continuum. And then when the grand jury thing came out, I thought, oh my God, QED, you know? I mean, like, and, and it was also, you know, I mean, if anybody has read that, it is such painful reading, you know. And, and again, you find instances where they say exactly like what they, some of the things they say in the Middle Ages. Like, you know, in fact, these boys threw themselves at these men and seduced them. And you're just thinking, what kind of world is this? It's really the world upside down, you know. But it is also okay, how do you maintain clerical privilege? How do you maintain clerical? If, you know, people are human. St. Paul had said that chastity was a gift of the spirit, shouldn't be imposed on anyone. Western church took a different route, and a lot of clerical ascendancy is wound up in their celibacy. And if they can't maintain celibacy, but they want to maintain ascendancy, you got to conceal these transgressions, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, there we go. That makes makes perfect sense. Yeah. And this is, it's so appropriate. It's so apt and it really starts, it's a way, it's, a, it's really cool. It was a really cool way to start. That's my intellectual response there. It was a cool way to start the book. I was like, huh. Um, and then to, it really drives your point home and it makes this, uh, it's a nice parallel. Um, but there, you know, I can also hear some of our more conservative colleagues saying, you know, from the dawn of time, <laughs> See, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I know. And actually, um, the um, the two anonymous readers um, didn't want me to draw any parallels between the medieval what was happening in the Middle Ages and the modern period. And they made the very, um, I think, you know, justifiable thing that you know I stopped in the Middle Ages. So that actually made me, in the conclusion, look at the Council of Trent and you know do sort of dips into historically what we know and it didn't look, but of course I was already stretched to my historical limits by going up to the 16th century. So, you know, but I still do think that, um, it was the right thing to do because even if I had stopped in the Middle Ages, I think it would have been disingenuous for me to have in mind
1: at this point a model that I really believed in and to not share sure. it with readers. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting, and that's the benefit of being, um, you know, a well-respected intellectual that you can say, well, thank you for your comments, but no. <laughs> it's my book, and I'm going
0: to do it. I know, I know. Well, you know, it's to the press. Left ultimately left it up to me, so which was nice. Though we had some discussions about it. I mean, you know, like <laughs> you know, wouldn't you just make it easier on us all if you know? But no, nah, I couldn't.
1: No, you shouldn't have to. <laughs> I
0: know. Yeah. I know. You know. I mean, like the thing is, we do have to in academia. I mean, for one thing. I don't know, in a lot of ways, I would have liked to have reached more people, but that's not the way I write. I mean, I'm very, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm quite a conservative scholar, a lot of footnotes, et cetera, et cetera. But I still thought that if I did make these connections, that maybe some people would. And, and, you know, I've been contacted by Catholic radio, um, et cetera, and, um, you know, some (laughs) Priests in Poland have written me telling me how wonderful this is. And actually, the thing that pleased me most was um, Father Tom Doyle, who I've admired so much for the work he's done on behalf of the survivors um, from sexual clerical sexual abuse. He was one of the first readers, um, the press sent it to him to blurb, and he had had some training as a medievalist, and he just he just thought it was wonderful. It was the book he said he'd wanted to write because he'd always believed this, and that made me very, very happy. So,
1: so I, have some, I have had some luck. <laughs> that is fantastic. Well, yeah, good, good piece of scholarship. All right, I've taken up so much of your time already, but I have one more question. What are you working on now? All right.
0: Now for something completely different, I'm, uh, I'm working on the church's um, punitive and celebratory digging up of corpses, right? I mean, exhumation is a pretty drastic thing. And, you know, of course, they exhume saints honorifically, positive translation of body. I'm more interested. I'm going to be looking at that some, but I'm more interested in what I call the negative translation and how it is that people after they're dead actually get dug up. And in the early church, it was believed that, you know, you can't condemn the dead. I mean, you know, Saint Peter was, you know, told to judge the living, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and that what he bound on earth would be bound in heaven. He didn't say anything about being bound underground, right? And this point is actually made at the Second Cons- Council of Constantinople. But, um, but, anyways, the High Medieval Church manages to move over that way for heresy digging them up and burning them. And, and, you know, the thing is, bodies do move around in the Middle Ages, right? But the idea of taking it out of consecrated soil and destroying the body is very extreme. I mean, initially it was just dumping them into a field, but then it becomes destroying the body. But then this becomes much more widely um applied not necessarily they only destroyed the bodies of heretics but they started digging up debtors so that somebody who um yeah if you if you imagine visa imagine visa oh my, you know, God, you God. Get my bones yeah we're going to dig up throw her in a field and you've got to authorize it and the church said yeah okay yeah, she did die in debt we're in the field you know I mean, it's grotesque
1: when you think about that. So that's what I'm working <laughs> on now. Suddenly student loans <laughs> seem so much worse. <laughs> like, oh, I, don't I just think what they can do, you know. <laughs> Live in a certain
0: people. Well, I think that's unusual. Yeah, <laughs> that is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, people, people, those
1: extremes. I mean, they do they do chase you down, but, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Wow, that's fascinating. I can't wait to read that book. We'll talk about yeah.
0: it. Yeah, me too. Me too.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much.
2: Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call